Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maitri's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, president of Maitri. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on September 28, 2020, we asked Paul Taylor to share five good ideas about advocating for change. I'd like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we are meeting and connecting virtually today, I encourage you to acknowledge the place you occupy. I am and Maitri is on the historical territory of the Huron-Wendat, Petun, Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the New Credit Indigenous Peoples. Territory that is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. Today, many of us are seeing the need to create a better world, one that is more just, equitable, and sustainable. COVID-19 has caused us to ask a lot of questions about how we can build back better. It's a moment that has the potential to be profoundly transformative. In this Five Good Ideas session, Paul Taylor will talk about his own experience in advocating for change and present his five good ideas for you to use in your own work. Paul is the Executive Director of Food Share Toronto and a lifelong anti-poverty activist. Growing up materially poor in Toronto, Paul has used his own experience to fuel a career focused not only on helping others, but dismantling the beliefs and systems that lead to poverty and food insecurity, including colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchal structures. For full details about today's session, please download the handout. We've put that link in the chat box as well. On the handout, you will also find today's five good ideas and resources and a bit more about Paul and about food share. So please, let's welcome Paul and over to him. Good afternoon, everyone. You know, I um, thank you, Elizabeth. I've watched some of these five good ideas presentations in the past and every time I've watched them, I've always been blown away. So I never imagined that I'd be doing one myself. So I have to say it's a real honor to be here with you today. And I hope some of what I share is useful to you in your life and useful to you in your work. Um, and again, thank you to Elizabeth and the team at the Maitri Foundation for today's invitation. This is, uh, I, I'm really excited and I hope you are as well. So I'll dive right in. You know, as Elizabeth spoke to, we're in the middle of some really uncertain times, and I hope that everyone viewing today is in good health and that the same is true for your loved ones. While things may be uncertain and challenging, I think advocating for a more just world is more important now than ever. This experience that we're all going through together will be transformative, but I think it's up to us to ensure that human rights, like the economic and cultural and social rights that Elizabeth spoke about, uh, are front and center. Whether it's the rights of indigenous peoples, whether it's our right to food, our right to housing, our right not to be killed by the police, it's becoming more and more clear that human rights must be at the forefront of how we navigate the pandemic, as well as how we recover from it. So before I, I kind of dive into the, to the meat and potatoes of what I'm going to be sharing with you today, I also want to acknowledge that I'm on the traditional territory of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabeg, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. I try my best, uh, you know, to think about the role that I can play in advancing reconciliation. Every time I hear a land acknowledgement and upholding the rights of Indigenous peoples, you know, whether it's calling for the long-awaited action plan in response to the report on murdered missing Indigenous women and girls and two-spirited folks, um, or demanding that our government prioritize something as simple as access to clean drinking water, you know, these are some of the things that I reflect on. And as a black person on Tur Turtle Island, I see the struggle for black liberation as, as linked to indigenous sovereignty in important ways. It's my ancestors, stolen people that were forced to farm on largely stolen land. So I will continue to resist colonization, the genocide of indigenous peoples and white supremacy in solidarity with indigenous peoples. 
You know, most of the statements, I think, following land acknowledgements, I recognize don't always seem to, you know, connect the struggle for indigenous sovereignty and black liberation. You know, many conclude with speaking about the role that we have as settlers in advancing reconciliation. And each and every time I hear that, I just want to scream, but I'm not a settler. And assuming that I am and is, is an example, I think, of the erasure of black people and, and, and the black experience and the role that we've played on Turtle Island. My ancestors were forcibly removed from their homes and communities as part of the transatlantic slave trade. So today and every day, I also want to acknowledge those who are on this land as a result of the brutal and horrific enslavement and forced migration of our ancestors. As I thought about what I would share with you today, I found myself thinking about the roots of my advocacy journey. And I really quickly, quickly realized that it's a journey that started long before I was even born. Actually, there's no way that I'd be doing any of the things that I do, including my work at FoodShare, if it wasn't for three brilliant and beautiful black women that I'd like to introduce you to. The first is Rebecca Thompson, my maternal uh, great-grandmother who was a fierce and strong-willed black woman. I have the only picture of her that exists. It's incredibly important to me and I look at it often. You know, as the great-granddaughter of slaves, the value of her freedom was instilled uh, pretty much since birth. And she was really focused on doing everything she could to create the best lives that she possibly could for her family. She taught her children about how important it was to live our lives right up until the day we die. She lived a life full of laughter, joy, and of course, uh, in my family, good food, very important. I wish I had the chance to eat alongside her at her dinner table. Maisie Olivia Baker-Burt is someone else that I'd like to introduce you to. She is my maternal grandmother. She raised three daughters with the very little that she had. Despite being materially poor, she was committed to making sure that every child in the community had food to eat. You know, she would often say that our future begins with children that are fed, that are strong, and that are learning all they can in school. So she was famous for her food. My mother tells me these stories of the long lunchtime lineup in front of her house, a lineup of children eagerly awaiting a taste of what my grandmother had prepared that day. Now she died uh, in St. Kitts 27 years ago and I was fortunate enough to be able to go to her funeral and met many of the children who are now adults that used to line up to taste the magic that was in her pot. If you've heard me speak before, you've likely heard me speak about Bernadine Naomi Taylor, my mom. As a single mom, she raised two black boys in this city, just off of Lansdowne in the West End. And doing so meant that she raised us while consistently pushing back against the low expectations bestowed upon black boys. Instead, what she inspired was creativity, curiosity, and she always told my brother and I that we could and will achieve anything we set our minds to. She would say, it's up to you to make your wildest dreams come true, Paul. These women are why I'm here. They're a large part of why I do the work that I do. They're why I believe that my wild dream of a more just society is possible. I've introduced you to these amazing women for a few reasons. One, we live in a society that rarely recognizes and values the labor and contributions of black women. Black women are the backbone of our communities, communities that have been starved of material resources, but somehow they do what they can to lift us up and hold us together. Speaking about the people that came before me, uh, especially the black women that came before me, is also about taking up space differently. It's about challenging a patriarchal and colonial mindset that focuses on the success of an individual. And who are we kidding? It's most often men. So I find great strength and focus in locating myself in something so much more powerful than my job, my work experience, or my title, or even my organizing. I am the generations before me. And that makes me really proud. Before I dive into the ideas I want to share with you, um, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge all of the women of color that are doing incredible and important, but often uncelebrated work to keep our communities alive and thriving. I remember when I was a kid, we didn't have food. My mother turned to her network of women of color that would lend her money or drop off delicious homemade food. I'm not sure what we would have done without them. And that takes me to my first idea. Uh, our advocacy efforts and our desire for change has to begin with knowing ourselves, where we've come from, and how our experiences have inspired the change that we want to see. 
In thinking about those experiences, it's important to interrogate our privilege, especially the cis hetero white men who often take up the most space, who are we kidding, who often take up all the space and have the most privilege in our society. You know, it's really important that we ground our advocacy and our desire for change in an analysis that includes understanding the systems that inform how much power and privilege we have. So if there's an issue that resonates with you, before centering your experience in that issue, it's critical to interrogate your privilege in relation to the issue. What blind spots does your privilege uh, um, lead you to have? Who else should you be listening to? And what are those folks articulating that they need and how can you use your power and privilege to support their needs? Growing up in a low-income household is largely what inspires much of my advocacy and, and my great desire for change. I will never forget. I remember those nights going to bed hungry and frustrated as I lay wondering, you know, when things would change. I remember dreaming. My big dream as a child was that I'd be rich enough to eat at a restaurant. I'd order the biggest thing on the menu and then I'd order it again. You know, growing up, I didn't know about the systems that caused my family to struggle as much as we did. I didn't know that there were other kids across the country having similar experiences of poverty-induced sadness and the ongoing frustration that I felt. For as long as I live, I will never forget that frustration of being hungry and not being able to do anything about it. The work that I do is deeply personal to me. And, I, and that's been really important because as we all know, advocating for change isn't easy. But when we're clear on why we're doing it, it becomes part of the fuel that gets us through some of those difficult and long days. I'm gonna to move to my next idea. And it's on what we consider advocacy or advancing change. Often when we think about advocacy or advancing change, we think about big policy change. Right now, conversations around things like a basic income. Not too long ago, conversations around increasing minimum wage and, and always a conversation around building more affordable housing. Now those things, and, and when we win at those things, are all important, but they're not the be all and end all when it comes to advocating for change. There are a lot of other things that have a real impact on people's lives. And what we or you might consider as something little can be super significant and important and have a real tangible impact on someone's life. I'll give you an example. I was involved in some organizing that brought folks uh, in a community together to talk about issues affecting their lives. But I think even more importantly, we talked about what are the issues that you're willing to work on addressing? And I think that's important because often the best advocates are those who are most affected by the issue. It was an example, though, of organizing built on relationships. What we did is we prioritized and built into how we organize, making time for people to get to know each other. So it wasn't transactional, you know, will you get involved? It wasn't a phone call saying, will you get involved in this issue? There wasn't an email that went out that said, will you sign on to this letter that we're writing to the government? It was, let's get to know each other. Let's get to know what matters to you. And I think it's really crucial that we didn't start with an issue. I've seen so much energy go into bringing people together around an issue, but when the issue is gone, often so too are the relationships and all that was built around that organizing. So when we ground our organizing in relationship building and listening, we are much more likely to uncover things that we might have missed. For the group um, that I was talking about originally, this was when I was living in Vancouver, and the issue that we uncovered through listening and building relationships, uh, the issue was around the time that the first bus arrived at a bus stop. There wasn't a bus that came early enough to get folks to their work at a local factory. So often what people were doing is they were sharing cabs, um, you know, pooling in a cab ride uh, to get to work, or they were simply risking being fired for coming to work late. So in working with those factory workers and, and folks in the community who depended on the income of the factory workers, we arranged meetings with reps from the Transit Authority where they told their stories about um, their fears about being fired, how much money they were spending on cabs all to get to a low-wage job, and the impact that an earlier bus would have on their lives. Two months later, the Transit Authority introduced an earlier bus which as you can imagine, had a pretty big impact on the lives of these folks. So it's really important for us to remember that advocacy isn't always the big public policy. It can be about building relationships, listening, and collectively working on the things that matter to those involved. 
these are the things that many might view as little things, but how can we expect, you know, and I think this is a tension that I, I bump up against often in a lot of organizing spaces that I'm involved in. There's this expectation that um, folks uh, will be engaged with some of the big issues, but how can we expect people to engage with working on bigger issues if we still haven't sorted the little things that are having a big impact on their lives? You know, these are folks that are often have been made to struggle the most, you know, and I think it's really important for us to recognize that if we can't show that change is possible at the micro level, it's really hard to believe that change is, is possible at the macro level. The next idea that I want to share is how important it is to be curious and to foster curiosity in our work together. And you know, it, it's funny when you write something like this um, and, I, and I think about the points that I wanna share, it was kind of tricky because I thought, you know, I could share uh, these things, um, and I, but I was mindful of the audience, you know, um, and I feel, feel like often in a lot of spaces that I'm in, people are speaking specifically to white folks or, um, so, so I wrestled with that a little bit. So at various points, you'll hear me share some, some advice or tips that may be useful for white folks. So here's one of them. For white folks, when I say curiosity, I don't mean the type of curiosity that sometimes inspires white folks to touch black people's hair or the type of curiosity that inspires some folks to ask non-white folks where they're from. I think it's really important also to not assume that you have the answer. When you do assume that you have an answer, you know, that's when we're more prone to things like white universalism, where we have white folks in positions of leadership or leading the solution finding that think the interventions that they're designing uh, that may work for them work for everyone else when in fact they don't. So instead, you can be asking yourself, how can I respectfully learn more about something that I don't experience myself? Are there ways that I can help with issues that are important to other people in their lived experience without taking up leadership space on the issue? At FoodShare Toronto, I think our approach to developing good food markets is an example of this from an organizational perspective. So for those that aren't familiar with good food markets, they are community-led produce markets um, designed to support communities in responding to a lack of access to affordable produce in their community. What FoodShare does is we subsidize the produce at these markets. There's almost 50 of them uh, across the city of Toronto. We don't own these markets. What we do instead is we lend our capacity and our experience to help communities get them off the ground. And again, I think it's especially important for white folks and nonprofit organizations doing work in community, or as I prefer, alongside community, uh, to remember to be respectfully curious and when invited to lend your capacity to support the goals of folks in that community. I think curiosity is so key. And when curiosity is nurtured, we're more likely to analyze issues through a system's lens. Curiosity opens windows of possibility that, may not, that we may not have imagined existed before, but curiosity needs to be encouraged. How about at your next team meeting, consider asking these types of questions. Why do we do our work this way? What assumptions have we made about our approach? How is white supremacy affecting the way we do our work? How is colonialism impacting how we see the issue that we're working on? For food share, it's that kind of curiosity and willingness to kind of interrogate an issue, um, to find out what we don't know and what we don't understand that really led us to launch new research on food insecurity in Canada. And research that I'll say, you know, ultimately shook how we understand food insecurity in Canada and the potential solutions to it. I'll tell you a little bit about this partnership. So through a research partnership with Proof, a food insecurity research group at the University of Toronto, we sought to understand the connections between food insecurity and race by looking at the experiences of Black Canadians and, and how it connects to food insecurity. So through our analysis of this data that was available in the Canadian Community Health Survey, we identified that Black folks in Canada are three and a half times more likely to live in a food insecure household than white folks. We also learned that while 12% of white children live in food insecure household, that number skyrockets to 36% when we're talking about black children. So for us, as we were learning this information, this was some of the initial findings, you know, we were curious to try and understand what was happening, what was causing this. We teased out as many factors as we possibly could. And when I say it challenged what we understood about food insecurity, this is what I mean. So for example, 
we, um, when we look at data aggregately around food insecurity, we know that if someone is um, an immigrant, if someone lives in a single parent household, um, they're more likely to be a, um, a low income household. We know that if someone owns a home, they're more less likely to be food, in, food insecure. And we also know that seniors, once they get to that age where they have access in essence to a basic income through the guaranteed income supplement and old age security and their own retirement income that we see food insecurity security levels decrease. This research shook all of that. For black folks, it didn't matter whether someone was born in Canada or abroad, the prevalence remained high. It didn't matter whether or not the household was headed by a single parent or two parents, the prevalence remained high. Around home ownership, we found that the percentage of black homeowners that were food insecure was just about equal, 14 and, and a bit, equal to the percentage of white renters that were food insecure, 14 and a bit percent. We looked at seniors, you know, I talked about how when folks become a senior, they, they, um, their level of food insecurity decreases, doesn't happen uh, for black folks. So I think this curiosity helped us to cement the significance of challenging anti-black racism as part of tackling food insecurity in this country. I've been asked this question when I talk about this research, you know, what, 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 what is the cause of it? What, what, what uh, accounts for the variance? And before anyone asks me today, I will say it is one thing. It is the prevalence of anti-black racism in every single one of our institutions and systems um, and, and whites supremacy. That's exactly what it is. And until we commit to kind of challenging anti-Black racism as part of tackling food insecurity in this country, we'll never get to the solutions that we hope for. My next idea when it comes to advocating for change is about recognizing the obstacles we face along the way. So for example, in trying to address issues like food insecurity in this country, we face some pretty big barriers. I think one of the biggest is that in Canada, food charity has been constructed as our default response to poverty and food insecurity. So what we've done is we've made poverty and food insecurity an issue for charity to solve, not one of basic human rights or an issue that needs to be addressed at its root through effective public policy. So in recognizing that obstacle or that barrier, what we have to do then is we have to embed overcoming that barrier in our approach to advocating for the change that we want to see. So as a result, you know, it's not uncommon to hear folks from FoodShare and other organizations, including other food organizations, talking about how absurd it is to expect food charity to solve issues like poverty and food insecurity when we know these are issues about income. We try to do this work honestly and boldly, you know, not to, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I wrote an op-ed in the Toronto Star that talked about how we can't let charity be the reason that governments turn a blind eye to actually addressing poverty and food insecurity. I think we can overcome many of the barriers that we face, you know, some of them take a long time as we advocate, but we can't ignore that key part of working for progressive change. We've really got to make sure we're identifying those barriers and building in addressing them in our work. And sometimes it delays some of the other fun stuff that we have planned, but it doesn't mean that we should uh, ignore it or skip over it. So my last idea for today is that we need to be open to radical change. The pandemic has shown us that everything can change in a matter of minutes. It's also shown us, which I think is of particular importance, is what can happen when our governments actually take an issue seriously. You know, we should, we should always keep this point with us, you know, because I think what, what the government response has proven is that governments can do so much more than they often lead us to believe. Everything can change, and it's our organizing and advocacy that can help advance that progressive change. So right now, um, as a current situation, I'm involved with a group of organizations encouraging the city to reconsider how we use city-owned land that's long been used for golfing. You know, what we're hearing are folks in these communities saying, wait a minute, this golf course is in my neighborhood. It's huge. I've never seen it. I've never used it. And these are also folks that don't have uh, access to enough green space to support physical distancing. These are folks that may not have access to a community garden plot. I think you can imagine where I'm going. 
You know, these are the types of things that we could be investing and building up as community-based infrastructure if we think, if we rethink some of the things that we've done in the past. Now is the time for that kind of radical thinking. What if instead of golf courses, we use this protected green space for other public and community benefits like growing food, maybe a community run good food market, or simply providing access, much needed access to green space during the second wave of the pandemic. I had to bring this one up because to me, very few things scream patriarchy, privilege, and white supremacy more than golf. Sorry if you're a golf player. If you're interested in supporting the organizing that's happening around this issue, um, you know, you can also reach out to your city councilor before September 30th. And uh, that's when they decide about extending the uh, operating agreements with the five city-owned golf courses. And let them know that you want the communities surrounding these city-owned golf courses to have a say in how that land is used. Radical change is absolutely possible. The city could transform these golf courses to something very different, something that more folks in the community can participate in and benefit from. Surely the funding to support the community's vision could come from maybe some other big expense lines uh, on the city budget. I don't know, maybe the police budget, just saying. I'm gonna end with a reminder to embrace radical possibilities, be bold, dream in color, and never forget what my mother taught me uh, all those years ago. We can and will make our wildest dreams come true. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, so wonderful that you began and closed uh, with uh, your mother and uh, the women that helped help ground you. And, and I think that was such a good place to begin. What grounds us, um, what gives us our identity. Um, we have a number of people putting questions and commentary in the chat room. I'm gonna ask you to put it into the Q&A box so that I, I can pick it up. Um, I wanna start actually, Paul, and it's, it's a question that was in the chat box and also um, um, I, one that we received elsewhere, which was, um, how do you, you know, what do you do when you meet resistance um, within the organization as you try to advance change, where, where you're working in an organization and that's where the first part of the struggle begins? What, do you have advice or thoughts about that sort of starting place of advocacy? Absolutely. I think one of the things that I do when I'm uh, considering where I might lend my labor, uh, so where I'm, when I'm looking to find a new job, I think about, I assess and think about whether or not um, the organization is ready for me, <laughs> whether the organization is ready for uh, curiosity. Um, and in, in my experience, sometimes I found that organizations aren't. So I say, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm, I'm not gonna work here. And I think if, because it can be so harmful for us, you know, when we're doing this work because we're, uh, feel compelled because of bigger change that we want to see and we just face resistance within our own organization every day. I think uh, there are times where we have to just walk away and say, you know what, this organization is not for me. Um, so the resistance to change really is all around us. The, the, I mean, you described so well uh, the powerful systems at play that create inequality and inequity. Um, one of the questions that we have is, um, how, do you, how do we push for change uh, in an area where governments have shown little or no interest or there's no political gain? And, and I think, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think we saw a, a fair amount of openness of government. We kind of, and that sort of opportunity for transformation, but increasingly we're getting back to the, the business as usual um, and, and some of the challenges of, of ideas perhaps landing on deaf ears or doors not being open. Um, how, do we, how do we work with that? What's your advice there? I, you know, I like to remind, you know, elected officials that they're working on our behalf. And I think, you know, so many of us don't get in touch with our elected officials for, for reasons that I understand. Um, but also, you know, those of us that are in touch with our elected officials, we should be contacting them to let them know that these issues are important to us. They will not move, they will not act on these issues until they feel like folks in their communities really care about them. So we've got to find more ways to demonstrate that things like poverty and homelessness and food insecurity, not only do they matter to us, but that we demand and expect our elected officials to support our most vulnerable community members with all of the resources available to them. Excellent. Um, from one of the participants, thank you for your presentation, Paul. What is your take on limitations from funders with respect to advocacy? 
It's kind of like, like I, I don't prescribe to this, um, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you kind of mentality. Um, and I, it's, I have a similar approach to the way that I approach uh, looking for a job. When you're looking for funding, um, we can't take funding from anyone and everyone. Um, it's also an interview process, even though the power dynamic has been constructed in such a way that often makes uh, nonprofits feel very small. You know, there are times where actually in the pretty recent, uh, not, not too far past, not too distant past, where Foodshare has actually had to push back against funders making silly decisions. Um, and we explain why all those decisions are silly. We, you know, we push back on, you know, the federal government who came up with a funding call that um, didn't allow, and anyways, I won't get into all of that, but we push back, you know, and I think funders don't know, just like our politicians, funders don't know unless we are there to tell them. Um, and if they don't want to give us money because of an issue that we're committed to or that we're working on, or that's important for the people that we're serving, that we're advancing, well, then we don't want their money. So there are times where we've had to say, we don't want your money. Thank you. And you have to be ready to say that. You do. And I think you also have to be prepared to get into a real conversation and challenge and, and, and get them into a place of being curious and deepening their understanding and, and to, to be a better funder and to engage more authentically in the work. And, and, and that's, you know, it shouldn't be part of the work, but it is part of the work. Yeah, and I think we have to uh, engage with them with that same openness and generosity, perhaps, you know, um, and then and expect that they're uh, willing to engage in a conversation about what might be problematic. Totally. Yeah. Um, I wonder what advice, and this is a question I, I like because it's a question that we deal with at Maitri Policy School, and it's what, what advice do you have for a group that wants to go from making a point to making a difference, and, and maybe just sort of uh, get into that, that distinction a little bit, and then how do you move from, from that making That's a point to yeah. impacting? That's a really good question, and it's come up for me a, a couple of times, and you know, it's also a bit of a red flag question for me about the organizing spaces that we're creating or about the organizations that we're creating. Because to me, when I hear like, let's just focus on making, you know, making, we're, we're devaluing making a point and really only focused on making, you know, what we, can, what, what we might call making a difference. That to me sounds like a bit of um, middle-class white bias that doesn't make space for the anger of multi-generations of abuse and genocide and lost wealth and health impacts that some folks uh, like black and indigenous folks in this country have had to endure. So we need spaces to be angry. So instead, what I would say is two things. One, uh, create spaces that allow for people to be angry and pissed off and mad. And also, you know, those folks that are often involved in looking to make a difference are looking for things like policy windows um, and that sort of thing. I think we need people who are upset and who are making a point to push those folks who are in those rooms negotiating with uh, bureaucrats and politicians around a policy window um, to go as far as possible. So I, those would be my, my, my two takeaways from that. I like that. Reframe it. Um, to the uh, question room. Um, Here's an interesting question. Is it time for a political party, federal or provincial, made up of BIPOC candidates? What do that's you think? Good, that's a good question. Um, I think there are parties out there. There are parties that, uh, that have BIPOC candidates. Um, they could do a whole lot better. I, I don't prescribe to the assumption that just because someone is black, indigenous, or a person of color, doesn't necessarily mean that they're progressive. So what I'm interested in is making sure that we have um, uh, BIPOC folks that are progressive in positions of leadership in every space possible. You want to create a new party, create a new party, and let's just, let's make sure that those BIPOC folks leading that party, involved in that party, are people who are progressive and who want to advance the types of change that we know is possible that so many of us in the sector are working on. Great. Um, another question from the uh, question room. Often the go-to is to send an email to an elected official, a city councilor, an MP, an MPP. When is this effect effective? What are the other effective actions we can encourage supporters to show support and affect change? And which moments call on which actions? 
That's a good question. I think that's a deeply personal, uh, you know, question. I think a lot of it often depends on how much you have to lose in situations, you know, so some of us maybe with less to lose might, you know, might be okay with doing something that doesn't, um, uh, yeah, that isn't urgent. You know, we send a letter to a city councilor or what have you, they put it in a stack and they figure out this many people care about this issue. I'm not sure what the, how that works. But, um, you know, I've seen some great organizing happening, uh, happen where people have said, there are going to be no evictions today. And we've had groups of activists and low income renters block the sheriff from being able to evict folks. That gets a whole lot of attention on an issue where there may not have been um, a lot of media attention, which allows more people to engage with the issue. So it really depends on, I think, where you're at with the issue uh, and who you are. Because I think sometimes, too, in our organizing, if we're building, uh, you know, broad coalitions, there are some folks that might be able to take more risk. There's some folks with more power. So I think what's important when you're bringing folks together is to do a little bit of that assessment um, and think about who can show up here and who can show up there um, so that we're covering a wider array of um, uh, opportunities to advocate. I've got some specific questions on food security and some of the work that's happening in the city. Um, here is one. Food Share made the news the other day about the Flemo farm becoming operational in the fall of 2021. Could Mr. Taylor please let us know what kind of bureaucracy you're dealing with? The community needs the food yesterday. What's going on? Oh my goodness, we need another webinar for that. <laughs> Try dealing with uh, the city bureaucracy. The Flemo Farm is a project where, you know, Foodshare is, you know, a lot about looking at underutilized public space and how can we transform that space to better serve the needs of the community. Um, kind of like golf courses, but we've been doing this work um, around hydro corridors. We've looked at school fields. There is so much bureaucracy when it comes to working with um, large institutions. We are ready to go. We've been ready to go for a long time. The community is ready to go and the community wants to be growing. I think the one thing that I won't um, uh, necessarily blame uh, the bureaucracy for is the pandemic. You know, that I think the pandemic has really, for all of the sites that we work with community to grow food on has really caused us to kind of pivot in this year and do things a little bit differently. Uh, yeah. Um, so another question sort of along the lines of public space or, or looking at the space that we now have available, um, has any thought been given to using empty office space for hydroponic farms? You know, I'm sure it has. There are so many organizations <laughs> across Creative the, thinking. <laughs> exactly, that are curious uh, across the country. Uh, it, hasn't something that, it hasn't been something that we are necessarily thinking about at this moment, but I can guarantee that there are organizations that either have been thinking about it or after that question came in, there's a whole bunch of research that's going to go into, uh, into that. Uh, so thank you for asking that question. Here's a question, and, and I think this represents a number of the people that often come to our Five Good Ideas sessions. This person says, I'm a frontline worker in a nonprofit organization. It's been an uphill battle to get my organization to prioritize the communities we serve over our donors. My question is, what can I do to help us move from a charity model towards a community building and a rights-based approach? I love that question. Yeah, so I, I it's kind of connected to what I was saying earlier, yeah. you know, it really depends on whether or not that organization is ready. It also depends on whether or not you feel like you have the energy um, and the support to be able to try and push that organization. And we know that for, especially for black women working in these spaces, you know, pushing an organization to do better is often met with hostility. So it, it, it's, it's another one of those things where you have to think about who you are, think about how much uh, power and privilege you have. Um, but one thing I would encourage anyone looking to advance changes in, in an organization is that you start talking with folks. You know, you start being curious, seize those opportunities over lunch, um, on a walk together or whatever it is, um, to ask the types of questions and inspire uh, the kind of thinking that will kind of help inspire that appetite for more progressive change and moving a little bit more upstream. Yeah, being deliberate about it. Um, we're, we're at 1.42. We, we tell people that we're going to sign off at 1.45. If you've got a few more minutes in you, Paul, uh, we've do, got yeah. more questions here. So are you okay, okay to keep going a, a little bit longer? 
I am indeed. Yeah. All right. So to to everyone out there, we're gonna we're gonna go a little bit longer. We certainly won't go past two o'clock, but we'll try to get to a few more questions because there's just so much appetite here. Um, I wonder how many food um, analogies or metaphors we can use. Um, one one I don't know if you can see the chat room, Paul, but one of the comments while you were speaking was that this was you you were good food for the soul. Oh, thank you, whoever said that. One <laughs> um, of the questions, I like this question a lot, aside from the golf course issue that you talked about, what are the most urgent and emerging social justice campaigns that you're excited about here in Toronto? What, what, are, you, what are you seeing that gets you excited? What gets me excited is, you know, I think there's one thing about convincing politicians to do what's right. I think that work is, again, really, really important. What excites me is when I see people in communities coming together to push back against uh, large institutions that can be uh, oppressive. So I, I loved the work that I saw of the Queen Victoria uh, Public School Black Student Success Committee, a small group of Black parents uh, and community members that have really pushed the Toronto District School Board to respond to an issue of anti-Black racism. Um, so those are the kinds of things that get me excited. I get really excited when people recognize the power that we have uh, in community, the power that people have, be because politicians, you know, uh, sometimes cite all kinds of problems or excuses as to why they can't get things done until people start showing up at their doors and um, sometimes blocking the sheriff or, or, or those sorts of activities. I want to share one quick story, you know, that we had a lot of fun with when I was in Vancouver. I was a part of this coalition called the Raise the Rates Coalition. And this government, it was a previous government under Christy Clark, um, was not interested in raising the rates whatsoever. So we had had enough. We met someone that looked like Christy Clark. So we um, put out our own press release and said that the uh, premier was gonna be announcing an increase to welfare. And we had a press conference and there were a couple of, uh, there were uh, uh, quite a few journalists that showed up and a couple of them for a few moments believed that Christy Clark was making this announcement. What it did is it got a lot of attention onto this issue and much more conversation around the plight of people in social assistance. So what excites me is when we reach for some fun stuff and um, you know things that really shake up the discourse in a way uh, that, uh, uh, gets things happening. Yeah. Here's a, a question that I, I think you and I actually, when we first met almost a year ago, we had a bit of this conversation. Um, this isn't my question though, someone else is asking. How do we move policymakers and the public to understand food security and other social and economic rights as human rights issues? We stop and we call out organizations and individuals around the table and the like at our dinner tables who believe that the solution is charity. You know, there are organizations that actually, you know, have as their mission statement, you know, ending poverty in communities or what have you, ending food insecurity in communities. No, um, you know, we, we have to stop doing that and we have to let other nonprofits know that they're actually doing a disservice every time that they say that they're ending hunger in, in communities across the city or country or wherever. Um, it's allowing people and politicians to think that that work is done or well taken care of by the community. So I think we need more people, especially folks. Uh, check out Freedom 90 if you get a chance. They've got a great website. You know, they're a group of um, uh, senior volunteers at a food bank that uh, came up with a bit of a campaign on a bit of a play on Freedom 55, is it, or Freedom 65, whatever it is, yeah. where they are saying they want to retire by the time they're 90. Um, and they are calling for um, systemic uh, systems change. So I think, um, yeah, we've got to push back and we can't let that narrative uh, continue. And I think it's also really important when we, because I see it in classrooms, you know, teachers and, and, and um, school administration are talking to um, children about poor people and saying that what we need to do is we need to go through our cupboards and give people our leftovers. Well, uh, you know, poor people are not walking compost bins. They don't want your leftovers, don't need leftovers. What we need is income to be able to buy their own food. Uh, I think that's just, that's just it. Human dignity. Um, somebody is asking a very specific question about the role of TCHC, Toronto Community Housing Corporation. 
question is why aren't they building community gardens into their building models? What about green spaces and gardens on the roofs of, of low rise apartments? Do you work with them at all? And I guess it's also a broader question about thinking about, you know, uh, government agencies and, and other big institutional players and what is their role in, in doing some of this? Yes, so the first thing I'll say, we do work with them um, to develop uh, good food markets. Many of the good food markets that I spoke about are actually located at TCHC sites. But I love the question because it says we have got to think radically and we have got to expect that these, that our governments and government bodies and government funded organizations are actually serving the public good and all that they do. Um, so for example, you know, Food Shares a Charity, you know, we've been doing the work that we've been doing at the start of the pandemic, we recognized that the public good shifted a little bit. We needed to hire as many people as we possibly could. Um, and that's one of the things that we did. We needed to keep people safe that were working with us. We needed to hire more folks um, to provide uh, income and, and revenue to folks. But I think that's the, the key piece is really pushing those kind of radical solutions. Um, we have assets. We don't always need a new tech solution or to build a new thing. We have city owned provincial assets that could be leveraged. Oh, the Freedom 90 site might be down. I just saw someone's comment there. Uh oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> Um, so two questions on the basic income have popped up in the in the chat room. Uh, what's your take on the universal? So I get, I'm going to preface this with saying what is the basic income to you? Because I think we all operate with very different. There's many different definitions out there. Yeah. Um, what do you think about it? And what it, what is it? And what do you think about it? Oh, you know, it was funny because I'm I think sometime soon talking about basic income and I'm mindful of policy windows and the heightened sensitivities when people feel that we're in a policy window. I think basic income is really, uh, I think of basic income as an income floor. Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, I, I prefer to use the language of an income floor in this country, but I think what I see happening is people getting excited about this policy which I think has some potential, but policies don't exist in a vacuum. So I think there are a couple of things that we need to be thinking about when it comes to basic income. First and foremost is who's at the table advocating for basic income? Is it a potentially a reflection of white supremacy? Because basic income is a go forward intervention. Who has the privilege to come up with go forward interventions? Well, people who haven't, like I said earlier, suffered generations of lost wealth, health impacts, um, all kinds of things. So I think in addition to a go forward intervention like the basic income or like an income floor, we need to be talking about restitution, perhaps in, by, by, uh, in the form of reparations. And the other thing I would add is that, again, a policy uh, doesn't um, exist in a vacuum. So I think we need to talk about human rights. And I think in a country as wealthy as this one, we should each expect that we should have the food that we need and housing and all of those pieces. So what I would like to see is basic income or minimum income used as one of the tools in a framework to achieve uh, a decent standard of living for all. So I would, I would expect a minimum income would be there. I would expect increasing uh, minimum wage, but also more of a guarantee of public services, like building affordable housing, providing childcare, pharmacare, all of those things that people are also spending money on, um, I think need to be a part of that picture. It needs to be part of a framework, not just um, uh, one policy that we kind of hang on to. Yeah. I also think, if I add one more thing, is that basic income will, yes, help take people who are in severe poverty, um, potentially out of poverty. A basic income does nothing to address anti-Black racism, anti-indigeneity, and the, and the inability to access leadership positions in, in businesses and organizations and government. So we don't have a silver bullet. <laughs> no, no, but I think it's part of the, it's part of the tool belt. It's part of the tools, yeah. Um, and, and such a good point too around all the other pieces. We need affordable housing, pharmacare, other elements that we don't want to see lost and we don't want to throw people into the open market. We cannot, we cannot. And that's, that's a big fear around the conversation around basic income that I hear yeah. a lot. Yeah. People feel that it, mean, it will mean cuts to those types of services. Yeah, okay, so it's 1.52, I'm conscious of time, but someone has pleaded, please tell us more about your golf course idea. How can this be done? 
So I'm going to let that be the last question so you can finish <laughs> off with your... <laughs> so we're working with a, a, a quite a few organizations. I think the Toronto Environmental Alliance, um, they have, uh, I think it's on their website, but they have a great tool, uh, one of those kind of e uh, email your city councillor tools that, uh, that makes it really easy. The big piece is get in touch with your city councillor, encourage folks in your network to get in touch with your city councillor. The council meeting is on September 30th. They will decide whether or not they should extend the operating agreement for the five city-run golf courses um, for another two years. And I think what we're saying is folks in, the, in those communities uh, where those golf courses exist need to have a say in what happens there. So please encourage your city councilor to do so. Feel free to reach out. You know, I'm on social media at all the things. Uh, Paul Taylor TO, feel free to reach out and I can help connect you. If your organization is interested in getting involved in moving this forward. Ooh, and I think Milana is uh, sharing the link for the e-petition. Thank you, Milana. Um, Milana is one of the folks who is um, really working hard to get city councillors to pay attention to this. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna squeeze in another question. Because uh, there's, there's a love fest going on here, Paul, it's great. Oh, uh, food share is amazing and your leadership has enabled so many of us in communities through your support platform partnerships. What are your thoughts moving toward building on food related social enterprises as a food justice model? Income, food insecurity is about income. If we're doing things to create decent work, and that's the key, decent work, so many social enterprises create shitty jobs for people in high stress situations. I don't think that's necessarily helpful. I don't think that advances food justice. So if you can create a social enterprise, and that's something that FoodShare is still chipping away on, you know, we've got social enterprises and we've raised the, the floor on what people make, but um, we've got lots of work to do. And I think that is the most important social enterprise. We can't, um, advance the impact of our work on the backs of our low-wage colleagues. So you've got to be creating decent work for folks. And here's a quick answer one. Will Foodshare be featuring or selling another box in support of Black Chefs growers in the city? The other one sold out too fast, so kudos to you and your team for putting that together. Ah, there I work. I just one plug for the amazing team of people that I get the good fortune of working alongside at Foodshare. It's an awesome team. And when I, you know, decided to kind of hang out at Foodshare, you know, it was because of those folks, some who have been there long before me, pushing at these kinds of issues. So really pleased to work alongside at the awesome team that I do. Nice. Okay. So we see a lot of people having to go. Um, what I'd like to do is thank you, Paul. Um, Terrific. You're, uh, the work that you're doing is outstanding. I think your model of leadership is something we can all learn from. And I think these are the conversations that we need to have more of. Um, there are so many people in this city that are trying to make a difference. And I think we need to have really straightforward, candid conversations like we did today and name the issues. Um, and we all have to I'll speak for where I am. I have tons to learn. Others do as well. And we do it through through these open conversations. So I'm, I'm so deeply uh, grateful. Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Paul Taylor. We link to the Five Good Ideas resources and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all of our Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Maytree website at maytree.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And you can subscribe to the Five Good Ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.